Hello, and welcome to today's episode of the Literate Caveman Podcast. I'm your host, Chad Blake. I am a voice actor. I have worked as a strength and conditioning coach for over 20 years. I taught self-defense for a long time, on and off, and my original education, my first career was in executive protection. So all those things influenced my interests, which are fairly broad. And in this podcast, we discuss books and literature and mindset with a focus on books that have been around for a while, most of the time. We will do some books that are pretty recent in the coming weeks, but most of the books we review are going to be books that have been out there for a bit that I feel are good books that many people are not aware of. So last week we introduced the first book in the series, which is C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves. And I went into some detail in that episode about how most people who are familiar with Lewis seem to know about Mere Christianity and the Chronicles of Narnia and possibly the Screwtape Letters. And then I don't meet many people who are familiar with him beyond that. So I thought this would be a really good first subject for this podcast. Uh, so we'll continue. Last week, we introduced the book. We kind of laid the groundwork with the first couple chapters in The Four Loves. This week, we're continuing the discussion with his chapter on affection. Just as a reminder, or if you did not listen to the last one, the premise of the book is that in English, people tend to use love very broadly and almost generically. Sometimes they use it when they should use like, and it's, it gets misused fundamentally in a lot of ways. In Greek, there are four different words, at least, that describe distinct forms of love. One of those is affection, and that's the subject of today's talk. Now, in the chapter on affection, C.S. Lewis begins by saying that affection is both the most widely diffused of loves and the love in which our experience seems to differ least from that of the animals. He goes on to say that this does not make it less valuable, and nothing in man is worse or better for being shared by the beasts. He makes the distinction that when we call a man a mere animal, we do not mean simply that he displays animal characteristics, because everyone displays animal characteristics in various ways. He says that when we criticize someone by saying they are a mere animal, we do so because animal characteristics are displayed when specifically human characteristics are called for. He also goes on to say that beasts can't be cruel in the same way people can because they're not quite clever enough. Affection in the context of this discussion comes from the Greek word storge. He defines this as affection especially of parents to offspring, but also of offspring to parents. The image he likes to start off with is either of a female dog nursing puppies or of a female cat nursing kittens. He feels this is a good place to start, although it diverges pretty widely from there, and explains this image creates a paradox with his ideas of need love and gift love that we discussed in our previous episode. To briefly recap for anyone who did not listen to the previous episode, C.S. Lewis described need love as a frightened child running to its mother for comfort. Gift love, he described as a person working hard and putting away their earnings to benefit future generations of their family that they will never meet. The paradox with the puppy or kitten example comes into play because the need love of the puppies or kittens is, ob is obvious, and so is the corresponding gift love of the mother. She gives birth, she gives suck, and she gives protection. He categorizes all of these as gift love. He goes on to point out that on the other hand, she must give birth or die, she must nurse or suffer. He says that in that way, her affection is a need love. He says the paradox is the mother's affection is a need love, but what it needs is to give. 
At the same time, it is a gift love, but it needs to be needed. He sets this up at the beginning of the chapter to help set up some points he will make later. From that point, Lewis goes on to explain that affection is one of the broadest and least discriminating of loves, and extends far beyond relations between mothers and offspring. He gives several examples of this that he has observed, pointing out that one of the unique things about this form of love is that it can be very broad in scope and shared between people and even animals that have little in common. From here, he goes on to say that one of the distinctions between affection and the other loves is its origins between two people can be obscure. With friendship and erotic love, we can often pinpoint the moment when we realize we were experiencing those feelings, sometimes down to the hour and the day. With affection, he says, when we become aware of it, it has probably been going on for some time. A criteria for affection is familiarity. Someone or animal who one is just used to being around, often without giving it much thought. Familiarity is important to his example. He is saying that affection does not just spring up between two people like friendship or Eroscan. Two examples he provides to make this point are how a dog will bark at a stranger who has never done it any harm, but may also wag its tail for someone it knows who has never done anything good for it. Similarly, a child might love someone he or she is familiar with who has never shown them any particular interest, but shrink from an unfamiliar visitor who tries to get their attention. The distinction here is that the person the child feels affection for must be someone the child is used to, someone who, from the child's point of view, has always been there. From this point in the text, Lewis reminds the reader that affection is the humblest of the loves he is describing. However, on the one hand, affection can exist between two people, such as an old gardener and a child, with none of the other loves, but it can also intermingle with the other loves and become the principal medium from which they operate on a day-to-day basis. This happens with familiarity. As we get to know someone, as they go from being a friend to becoming an old friend, for example, what becomes old and familiar leads to this affection. Similarly, he feels that without affection, even erotic love would be very disagreeable without what he calls the homespun clothing of affection. From here, he goes on to explain that while affection is not primarily an appreciative love, over time it can lead to appreciations which would not exist without it. The reason for this is because affection is quite often initially expressed between people or even animals who would not normally be friends. In the case of people, affection ignores the barriers of age, sex, class, and education. In the case of animals, it can exist between dogs and cats if they are socialized. Although humorously, in the text, Lewis relates the story of how a friend of his agreed that while this is true, dogs would probably not admit it to other dogs. This leads us to his next point, which he felt was one of the most remarkable things about affection. While he says it is not an appreciative love, again, it does not discriminate and can exist in spite of barriers that can impede friendship or erotic love. This fact creates a situation which can make appreciations possible between people which, without affection, might never have existed. He goes on to explain that while people will say they choose their friends and their lovers for their various qualities such as beauty, intelligence, and so forth, it must be the particular kind of beauty, intelligence, etc. that appeals to us. This, he explains, is why friends and lovers will express that they are made for one another. The glory of affection is that it can unite those who would emphatically, even comically, 
would have nothing to do with each other if they did not find themselves in the same household or the same community. While this by no means always happens, when it does, over the course of time, one person may grow fond of another simply because they are there and gradually admit there is something in him or her. Lewis says this can be a very liberating moment, though it may not feel that way, when we begin to appreciate goodness or intelligence for themselves, and not merely goodness or intelligence, or what have you, flavored for our own palate. In this way, he says that affection broadens our minds. He argues that a person with a large circle of friends does not necessarily have a wide range of tastes. No more than someone who enjoys the books in their study can claim a wide selection of tastes. A quote from the text, You chose those friends, you chose those books, of course they suit you. He continues that the truly wide taste in reading is that which would allow the reader to find something to read in a bargain bin at a second-hand bookstore, and the truly wide taste in humanity will find something to appreciate in the cross-section of humanity whom one has to meet every day. At this point in the text, I feel Lewis ties his argument together, and I will quote him here. He says, In my experience, it is affection that creates this taste, teaching us first to notice, then to endure, then to smile at, then to enjoy, and finally to appreciate the people who happen to be there. At this point, he moves on to caution the reader about what he sees as the danger of affection. Apparently, in some or most Victorian literature, the idea was put forth that what he calls the domestic affections, when at their best, were the same thing as the Christian life. Further, he says that many of the songs and poems, he calls them treacly, which I think will be our word for the day. Treacly is from treacle, which according to Merriam-Webster, is what the British call molasses, or syrup. As I was saying, Lewis argues that many of the songs and poems which he calls treacly and saccharine suggest that affection requires no effort. Just let it pour over you like a warm bath and all will be well. Reminding the reader that affection contains both need love and gift love, Lewis goes on to explain that need love can become the most unreasonable. The reason for this is pretty straightforward, he says. On the one hand, nearly anyone may be the object of affection. The potential problem is the expectation and potentially the entitlement of affection. Most people understand, as Lewis puts it, that we must do something, if not to merit, at least to attract erotic lover friendship. But affection is often assumed to be provided. This can create a situation where, when the need for affection becomes desperate and is laced with entitlement, when, as Lewis says it, becomes ravenous, it will work to shut off the very affection that is desired. Quoting again from the text, the situation becomes suffocating. If people are already unlovable, a continual demand on their part to be loved, their manifest sense of injury, their reproaches, whether loud and clamorous or merely implicit in every look and gesture of resentful self-pity, produce in us a sense of guilt for a fault we could not have avoided and cannot cease to commit. They seal up the very fountain for which they are thirsty. End quote. This is a long way of saying that if you want to be loved, whether we are discussing affection or one of the other loves, be lovable. Do not be toxic about it and assume that the people around you owe you affection or eros or friendship. If you feel like you're not getting your needs met by the people in your life, try working on yourself before you go making accusations and spend a lot of energy making those people feel guilty. Lewis explains that sometimes this manifests in families where one family member is very harsh on another. Essentially, 
Sometimes when people are very comfortable with each other, they will communicate in ways they would never communicate with a stranger or a casual acquaintance. Dogmatic assertions, ruthless interruptions, flat contradictions are justified with the excuse that we do not want what he calls company manners at home. That we can say anything to each other at home and that we all understand. His opinion, and I agree with him, is that more often than not, this behavior, which in this example has its root in the speaker having an out-of-balance need for affection, drives people away instead of endearing them. The difference between saying what you want without driving people away and saying what you want and driving people away is the intent. Affection at its best can say whatever affection at its best wishes to say. Quoting again from the text, Affection at its best wishes neither to wound nor to humiliate, nor to domineer. You can say nearly anything in the right tone and at the right moment, the tone and moment which are not intended to and will not hurt. I feel a need to make a distinction here. We are discussing very specifically interactions between people who have an imbalanced need for affection and the objects of those needs. We are not discussing the proper way to deal with conflicts within a household or a social group or in a work environment. There are times when dealing with conflict we need to be very direct, and the tone is going to be different than what we are discussing from this text. That does not imply we should be trying to cause harm when we are dealing with conflict. Going back to the text, Lewis spends some time explaining that most people recognize a difference between intimate and formal courtesy. He points out that to be free and easy when introduced to a stranger, which would be an example of intimate courtesy, can be bad manners. Likewise, to be formal and ceremonial at home is also bad manners and is nearly always intended to cause harm. In the next section of the chapter on affection, Lewis discusses jealousy. He makes an early distinction that jealousy is not limited to erotic love. He states that the jealousy of affection is especially connected with its reliance on what is old and familiar. The example he provides is of a pair of siblings who are close in age and share most experiences and interests until one of them suddenly, as he calls it, leaps forward and takes on an interest in something entirely new. The jealousy he is discussing will be directed towards the new interest. It could be that the jealous sibling, or friend, is either not interested in the new interest or simply not ready for it. Either way, the reaction against the interest can take the form of criticizing either the interest or the person with the new interest. This can take many different forms and is not limited at all to children. I think he just felt children were an easy example. In the next section of the text, Lewis moves on from the relationship of need love with affection and moves on to gift love. A healthy gift love is one which works towards its own abdication. Quoting from the text, The proper aim of giving is to put the recipient in a state where they no longer need our gift. Conversely, an unhealthy gift love is one that either a one that is either forced on people or keeps them dependent on it. The ravenous need to be needed will gratify itself either by keeping its objects needy or by inventing for them imaginary needs. This is further complicated by the fact that, as we are talking about gift love, the assumption is that it is unselfish. He points out this is not limited to relationships between parents and children. He provides the example of education as that was his primary field. He says that a good educator should always be working towards the moment when the student is fit to become a critic and a rival. He recounts a colleague of his 
It was very popular with his students, who had a very repeatable pattern. This professor was apparently very good and made a strong impression on his students. So much so that many of them would visit with him after they were done taking his classes. But Lewis says that the pattern that followed was after a few months or after a few weeks, the former student would go to visit their old teacher and would be told he was busy. And he would be busy any time after this that they tried to visit again. What would happen was the student would reach a moment of independence, quote, uh, differed from the master and supported their own view, end quote, and the professor could not bear it. I myself have seen this both with self-defense instructors and personal trainers who keep their students dependent on them because they are afraid of losing their business. In personal training, there is actually an entire body of work that is designed to keep clients dependent on the trainer, so they feel that if they leave, they will not know how to work out on their own. This is garbage training, and I have no patience for trainers or coaches who run their businesses this way. Moving on, Lewis points out that in some people, the need to be needed might find an outlet with animals. In a healthy situation, the animal can act as a bridge between nature and ourselves, giving humans a little bit of a connection that we otherwise might feel we have lost. In an unhealthy expression, the animal can become a substitute for a child and be kept in an infantile dependent state, creating needs for countless little indulgences that only the owner can grant. This probably does not harm an animal to the extent it would harm a child, but it is not healthy for the animal or for the person who's inflicting the affection. Wrapping up this chapter, Lewis emphasizes that he is not claiming affection is not very important for most of the happiness people experience in their natural lives. He goes on to say that he does not believe all the maleficent states of affection are exclusively pathological. He believed it was more of a spiritual problem. From there, he states that affection produces happiness if, and only if, there is common sense and give and take in decency. He says that affection by itself has a tendency to go bad, to take on a kind of pleasure of resentment. In the text, he provides an example of a woman he knew whose consistent behavior done in the name of love towards her family made her, made her family miserable. And when they pleaded with her, they would really rather send the laundry out than have her do it or eat a cold meal in the heat of summertime uh, as opposed to her fixing a hot meal every single meal all year round. What he calls this pleasure of resentment became evident. He says when situations like this develop, nearly anything said will become a grievance. The pleasure of resentment, he asserts, is the lowest form affection can take. He finishes the chapter by bringing back one of his first points, that love, having become a god, becomes a demon. Well, this concludes our brief review of the chapter on affection. Next week, we will be reviewing the chapter on friendship, which is a very interesting chapter. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Please enjoy the rest of your day or evening or morning, depending on where you are and what you have going on, and go read a book.